This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Mobile hunters, if you're interested in upping your mobile game, then head to tetherednation.com and check out their saddle gear. There are a few things that you can buy that will actually help you become a better deer hunter or give you the freedom to hunt any tree or any situation. This reason is why I started saddle hunting in the first place and why I use Tethered's gear. I can honestly say that Tethered saddle gear has changed how I hunt for the better. Big tree, little tree, from the ground, it doesn't matter. I'm untethered by my gear to hunt the best setup for the situation instead of hunting for a tree that my gear can use. My current course setup consists of the Phantom Saddle, Tethered One Sticks, and the Predator Platform, and along with an assortment of their accessories. So if you want to up your mobile game, head over to tetherednation.com. If you're like me, you spend a lot of time pouring over maps, looking at weather data, all in an effort to help predict when and where my best times are to hunt. It'd be nice if there was a reliable source with all this information in one place. Enter the Spartan Forge app. Unlike some other predictive apps on the market, Spartan Forge was created from military combat intelligence experience tailored for hunters and stands at the nexus of machine learning and whitetail deer hunting. No more man-made algorithms. This is a predictive model based on real GPS collared deer data, historical and predictive weather, and the next level of mapping imagery, all at my fingertips. I've had an opportunity to use the desktop version last year and have been using the iOS app this season, and it has replaced all my other mapping tools. Visit SpartanForge.ai and sign up today, or head to your iOS or Android app store and download it today. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew Coffee roasts premium single-origin coffee, guaranteeing to deliver the freshest coffee directly to your doorstep. The kicker? They're 2% for conservation certified and donate 10% of their proceeds back to organizations who support the interests of our hunting community. So go to SkullBrewCoffee.com and pick up one of their three killer roasts and fuel your hunt and fill more tags with Skull Brew Coffee. Welcome to the Troops from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 263. Today, we're taking a trip back in time with a 2021 look back, so stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you're doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. I have a cool show for you guys today. We're actually just going to jump right into things. Um, there was something I've been wanting to do uh, since, I guess, let me back up for a second. This past, I, don't, I think it was maybe in 2020, if I'm not mistaken, Greg Litzinger and I actually went back through and did what we called the Look Back series, where Greg actually went back and listened to a bunch of old podcasts and pulled tidbits out or pulled clips out that he wanted to kind of talk about. And, uh, and, and so we did that and it was a really fun project. It was really cool. I think we did maybe three or four episodes of that. Um, and so I liked that idea and every year I kind of go back, you know, and, um, well, I have some time off over the holiday and, and kind of go back through and re-listen to either whole podcasts, you know, with specific guests of something I wanted to kind of relearn, revisit, you know, or, or refresh my memory on, or, 
you know, just kind of find tidbits and nuggets that I may may have may have forgotten. And so I was kind of thinking back to whenever Greg and I did that project together and I liked the idea of it. And so I thought, you know, maybe I should kind of make this an annual thing where I do a, you know, kind of year in review, if you will, instead of going back and listening to the entire catalog of, you know, 260 some odd podcasts that we have, you know, on the on the, on the podcast now, maybe I just go back and I look at the, like the past 52 from the past year and revisit some of the more kind of, uh, illuminating or significant parts of the podcast or things that maybe I just found interesting. Hopefully you guys find them interesting too. And so that's really what I did with this. It's probably going to end up being like a two or three part series, uh, to make it all the way through. And I may not pull clips necessarily from every single podcast that I've done. It might just be with specific guests where they said something kind of poignant that we should all kind of re remember or think about, or just maybe a cool part of a, of a, of a conversation. And so that's what this podcast is. It is a kind of revisit a year in review, a look back series, whatever you want to call it, uh, with a handful of guests. And this first part, you know, what we are, uh, the, the, the fellas that I actually pulled clips from were, uh, John Eberhardt. Uh, Josh Ilderton from the untamed and then Todd Mead. And we kind of talk about everything from with John. It's about, you know, how he hunts late season things that he looks for in late season to his, you know, postseason scouting approach with Josh. You know, he's obviously in, in West Virginia hunting mountain country a lot from the ground. And so the stuff that I pulled from him was kind of talking about that approach with mountain hunting from the ground and whether to target a specific buck or not. And Todd Mead, is from New York and is hunting, you know, in the Adirondacks, some really, really challenging places to hunt. And so what we talk a lot about with him is just really about how to find deer in those, you know, low deer density areas. And the best way to learn about deer is to be around deer. And so those are the clips that I pulled from him and just parts of the conversations that I really kind of enjoyed during the, uh, during the course of the year. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and jump into today's show. I hope you guys dig the clips. I hope you guys dig this look back series and look for a couple more of these to come out in the next few weeks. And as always, I want to thank you all for listening. All right, gang, this first clip is with our good buddy, John Eberhardt. At the beginning of 2021, we did a couple part series with him. And these first couple clips are very appropriate as uh, for this time of year, as we talk to John about um, his approach to late season. Uh, this first clip specifically kind of talks about security cover and the type of cover that he's looking for. We all know that John is looking for security cover, especially whenever it's in fall uh, during the fall time frame or October time frame, especially in and around kind of bedding scrapes, et cetera. Um, but it is doubly so whenever you get into late season in high pressure states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York, where you have a lot of hunters in the woods for a large part of the season and you've just kind of come out of our gun season. So let's go ahead and jump into this first clip with our buddy, John Eberhardt. But when you're mentioning that right type of security cover, because I think for me, you know, that was a big thing for me, you know, and, and as I evolved as a hunter, you know, following a lot of the stuff that you talk about, especially when it was in that October and, you know, pre-rut and rut kind of phase. But when you're talking about the right type of security cover or bedding during late season, given that that can look vastly different from October to when you get to December, just based on how the foliage changes in the timber between those times. So give me an example of what you would what you would deem or the type of habitat you would deem to be good security cover or bedding for late season. Probably the, probably the best spot you could have in a state like Michigan. And I don't know what you have in PA. I've never hunted PA hmm. uh, is cedar swamps. Yep. So cedar swamps are relatively dense. It's low ground. There's a lot of weeds. Typically uh, cedars grow low to the ground unless they're browsed up high. And so you not only have a bedding area, you also have a feeding zone. Mm -hmm. So if you can get in a, you know, something like a cedar swamp where they have some a food source there as well, or if you're in a, just a heavy marsh grass or cattail marshy area swamp where, where you have to cross a river to get back to it. So you're leaving your other public land people behind. Um, and there's, let's say, an, an oak, some oaks, you know, an island of oaks or an area of oaks where there's still acorns on the ground. Um, you know, there, there's still a chance that you could potentially get an opportunity at a mature buck in December. And all, all three of the books, book bucks in Michigan, and I've shot several other monster bucks out of state in December in Illinois and Ohio. Mm -hmm. um, but all of them I've shot in Michigan were in uh, dense, dense bedding areas where there was also food, natural food sources in the bedding area. Because a mature buck in a Michigan PA 
they just are not going to be fooled. I mean, baiting's banned here yeah. now, and I wasn't baiting anyway. But they just don't get – there's a lot of people here that still bait. Uh, they just don't get fooled by anything man-made, like food plots and stuff like that. Of course, on public and knock on doors, you never have that anyway. But, right. but the mature bucks, they, they just don't get fooled by that. They're, they're going to feed at natural destination locations, and it's got to be in heavy, heavy security cover. And you ha- and you're always, it's always going to be on a morning hunt because you can't enter those places on an afternoon hunt because you're spooking deer with your entry. So you got to get in there, you know, and I'm in there usually late season. I'm in there probably two hours before daylight as opposed to an hour and a half. During mm-hmm. regular season, I'm probably an hour and a half in my tree before daylight. But uh, by the late season, they, they actually go into bed, into their bedding security cover areas a little earlier than normal. So I, I like to get in there really, really early. Wow. And obviously, if it butts up to some for, some form of an ag field, or if you got an ag field close by, you can't enter through the ag. You got to come in through the backside into the bedding area. So some interesting, uh, interesting stuff there from John. You know, especially talking, you know, a little bit unconventional uh, with kind of looking at mornings as an opportunity during late season. I think a lot of folks kind of follow that. You know, going back to the fall, October. You know, maybe even maybe more specifically September timeframe or certainly October timeframe. A lot of folks won't hunt, hunt the mornings, um, you know, really kind of focusing on the evenings where, you know, if you literally think about what John is saying, it makes sense. You know, during this timeframe, uh, late season, they've had the most pressure that they're going to have all year. Of course, they're super skittish looking for that security cover, like you mentioned. Um, but they're setting themselves up and they can kind of, you know, the foliage is off the trees. If you think about it in terms of, it, you know, the, what the deer is looking at, they have a a long kind of uh, range of 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 visibility. They're certainly going to be back to bed as you're trying to walk in, into the timber uh, for an evening hunt. And so, you know, all of us who hunt late season certainly we also know that it seems like this time of year the woods are just ten times as loud as they are any other time of year. There's no foliage on the trees to kind of deaden any of the sound, especially if it's super cold out and crisp. It seems like that sound just travels for for freaking miles. And so from a visual and kind of auditory standpoint, we are certainly behind the eight ball for any evening hunt to get in close to any type of bedding where we, we might have a chance to see um, see daylight movement. So, you know, mornings seem to make sense, something I probably need to kind of rethink and make sure I'm thinking about as I kind of trudge through the rest of my January uh, late season here. But uh, with that, we have two more clips coming up from our buddy John during from the same session talking about late season. This next one is really kind of talking about the type of weather conditions he prefers uh, during late season. Uh, super cold, nasty with some precip. And then the second one uh, in, 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 this, uh, in, in these specific clips talks about his approach to staying warm. Um, as you guys know, in, in sports, you can't make the club in the tub or from the tub, uh, meaning that you can't make the ball club if you're injured. Kind of same thing applies here for deer hunting. You can't kill deer if you are not in the woods. So this is his method to stay warm. Let's hear from John. Is there any specific kind of weather conditions that you have noticed and maybe you didn't kill on that hunt or that you actually saw more movement than you would have typically seen? Was there any type of, you know, whether it was during a snow, after a rain, you know, crazy freezing temperatures, whatever the case was, is there anything that you've kind of been able to point to that that says, hey, when it does this during late season, this is probably the best opportunity I'm going to have just in general of seeing deer move? Deep snow and right after a snowfall. Or during, even during. I mean, that 160-inch 12-point I shot in Illinois on public land in mid-December, it was two days after their gun season ended. Hmm. Um, I shot him, and it was a 30, about a 35-mile-an-hour wind, and it was 7 degrees. That wasn't the wind chill. It was 7 degrees without the wind chill. <laughs> it that's, was that's brutal. damn cold. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've told this story so many times, I'm sure everybody's heard it, but I, I, sat, I got in this tree, and I had on five body warmers. I had two Rivers West ambush jackets on with the lock underneath. I mean, I was dressed for it. Right. And I kept my nose, because I'm hunting out of a saddle, and I kept my nose right against the tree on the downwind side of the tree. So otherwise, my eyes would water if I was exposed to that cold wind. Yep. And um, about a half hour before dark, I was like, why am I even sitting here? There was a locust tree next to me about 17 yards. And the deer had been tearing that locust tree up. But I'm sitting there thinking, why am I sitting in this wind and this cold? No deer is going to move. And I almost got down like a half hour before dark. And I'm like, well, I might as well just sit here until dark for God's sake. I only got a half an hour. Right. I saw 
I saw two bucks. I had a small 10 point come through and then that 12 point came through with three does and just, just before dark. And I shot the 12 point. We were just talking about super cold weather, man. And like you were talking about, you're, you're like, am I crazy or what? I'm sitting out in this tree. It's like seven degrees with a minus wind chill, snow blowing, faces freezing. You know, I think part of the thing that people underestimate during late season is just the simple fact of staying warm, right? Like you got to be in the tree to be in the game, right? So do you have any kind of like John Eberhardt's yeah. tricks, tips, and tactics for that you've I'll developed you over what, the years? The last two years, I mean, I've been using grabber body warmers for years. Yeah. You know, they're adhesive body warmers. They're air activated, and I put them on my kidneys and in my sternum on, on my base, uh, over my base garments when I start to get cold. And they only get to like 142 degrees. So they're, they, they're made for patients with arthritis. And mm-hmm. so they have a very controlled heat. It's not like taking a hand warmer or a toe warmer and putting it inside where you're going to end up burning yourself because they don't, they're totally controlled by how much air they get. Right. So these body warmers are great, but the last two years I've been using these heated vests, oh. and they are bad ass. That's all I've got to say. <laughs> they are bad. So what, Bad is in good. Right. <laughs> bad is in like how the kids say good now, right? <laughs> oh, my God. I just got another one. I've got three of them. I've got two of them that are made by Stuntlock, and I don't like them. Mm-hmm. Um they, they're called reactors. They're $200 retails by Stuntlock. They don't come with batteries. Uh, they're five volt. Um, but they shut off after 45 minutes. They uh-huh. work phenomenally well. And they have insulation in the body of the vest. Hmm. But they shut off after 45 minutes. And I hunt out of a saddle. And usually your vest is going to be just above my base garment, which is going to be typically some kind of merino wool. Right. So I've always got something else over my vest and then my stunt lock over top of, of that. And plus I've got a saddle on. So it's coming up a little bit around my side. Mm-hmm. So when the vest shuts off after 45 minutes, it's hard to, you know, I got to, because I'm in my signature saddle, I overlap the two panels. So I actually have access to get up into my pocket in that vest underneath. But it's still difficult because it's underneath, the, you know, my two other layers. Right. And I just think it's ridiculous for something to have an automatic 45-minute shutoff. If I want to turn it off, I ought to be able to turn it off myself. I'm an adult. I bought the damn thing. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. These next two clips are, again, from our buddy John Eberhardt. We did a, a series with him uh, this past year. And this next session that we did with him was all about kind of postseason scouting and uh, I guess the second clip is really more about qualifying signs. So this first clip um, is really kind of going through and detailing John's postseason scouting kind of approach. If you guys know anything about him, uh, he's very kind of detailed in how he do- how he does things, clearing runways, manipulating runways if he if he can, um, you know, just to kind of move deer in a certain direction or whatever the case is, whenever that might be applicable from, you know, inventory or or information he might have from previous hunts or whatever the case is. The second clip then. Um, is really kind of talking to John about, you know, so you walk onto a piece and and maybe it's new, brand new, or maybe it's newish and you don't have a bunch of historical knowledge about it. You know, and the big thing is, is, you know, when you're doing that and you're walking through and you're scouting and maybe you're hunting the way John likes to hunt that freestyle um, or freelance type hunting where you show up with very little information or no information. The hardest part is trying to qualify the sign that you're seeing and understanding whether or not it's something that should be hunted then or, you know, or, or is that sign three days old, four days old, two weeks old, or whatever the case is. And, and is it worth, is it, is it worth hunting? And so the second clip is talking to John about how he kind of determines, um, if that sign is fresh enough to hunt or how he qualifies the sign when he's working on a property with, with limited, uh, with very limited, uh, information. How do you start your postseason scouting? Like I, I would like for you to just kind of walk me through your full process. And like, so the scenario is we're sitting here, it's, it's January. The season has just ended. What is the first step you take in starting to uh, lay plans for the next, for the upcoming year? Okay. Because I'm a sales rep in the hunting industry, Mm -hmm. uh, January and February, I'm balls to the wall working. I'm on the road, visiting accounts, selling stuff. So I, I really don't get an opportunity to do anything hunting related until usually March, mm-hmm. but that's fine. Cause usually in Michigan, we have snow on the ground until March anyway. So, and I would never even consider postseason scouting when there's snow on the ground, because when there's snow on the ground, 
Uh, there's no hunting pressure, you know, at pretty much late December, January, February. So deer actually don't bed in the same areas in the winter as they do in the fall. So, you know, they move down into lower ground, closer to preferred food sources. So the sign you would see in the snow would pretty much be irrelevant to next fall's deer move. And in my videos, I don't know, I know you have them, but I don't know if you remember, mm -hmm. um, when I was doing the post-season scouting video, I actually went in some timber, some oaks, that, and the acorns were obviously gone, but there was snow on the ground. There's probably six inches of fresh snow, and it had been there for, well, it had been on the ground for two weeks. And I walked through there with a camera, and there wasn't a track. I probably walked 300 yards, and there wasn't a deer track anyplace. Hmm. And I know that area had deer going through it in the fall during deer season. So that was my point of proving that if you go out and postseason scout, it doesn't give you a true look at what's actually there in the fall. So then I went down into a cedar swamp, like we were talking about in the first segment, and you couldn't put your foot down any place without stepping on, on a deer track. They were just, they were yarding down there. Mm -hmm. So, and there's not that many deer in those cedar swamps in the fall as there are in the winter when they go down in there in the yard. So you have to wait until the snow is totally gone. Then that's, that's which is perfect because my job usually kind of gets slow in March and then I, I can get out there and postseason scout. And what I do, even properties that I've hunted before, you know, every year things change, food changes, and mass changes. Uh, if there's fruit trees on the property, that changes from year to year. So every year, the more you hunt any place, public or private, you learn nuances and you'll be hunting and you'll see activity over here or whatever. And you're like, you know what, this postseason, you know, I'm going to go over there and check that out. And I may prep, prep a location. And that's the cool thing about postseason scouting is you can rape a property. You mm -hmm. can go in every day, from daylight till dark in March and April, you know, and spook every deer out of there. And it's totally irrelevant. It has nothing to do with fall movements whatsoever. Those deer are going to be back in there six months after you're done. So, you know, spooking deer is irrelevant. Scent control is irrelevant. You don't have to worry about that. You you can check every inch of the property. Um, you know, you keep in mind when you when you do a lot of scouting in preseason, a buck that's three and a half years old or older, you know, in a pressured area, they don't know you're scouting. Right. They've been alone all summer. They've been probably left alone since turkey season, and they probably didn't get much activity during turkey season. So they've probably been left alone almost totally since January. Right. And they know when there's an influx of human activity, that's a threat to their existence. So they begin, they, they just turn nocturnal. So your early season, you totally blow your early season by scouting very much and doing much location preparation during preseason. So postseason, you can go in, you can trash the property out, you can go in interiors of bedding areas. You know, I'm a big bedding area hunter. Uh, look for areas and bedding areas where there may be some oaks or some food or a little openings where there's several, you know, runways going through, um, you know, prep your locations. And then you never go back there till till deer season when you actually go in there during the rut phase. So you're totally leaving those alone during preseason and during the early part of the season. Right. Uh, you can tell when you're looking at your trees or when you're actually looking at the vicinity you can actually tell how much security cover there's going to be during the rut. Right. Because a lot of times preseason, you'll go into an area and everything's got foliage on it and everything looks dense. Yeah. So you may prep something that you think I'm going to hunt this during the rut phases. And then you go back there during the rut when all the foliage is down on the, you know, on the low, on the low brush, as well as in the tree. And you stick out like a sore thumb and the security <laughs> cover is not there that you thought was there. So yeah. during postseason, you're looking at your rut phase locations exactly the way they're going to look when you go back to hunt them, you know, in late October, early November. Right. So you're going to get up maybe in an extra five or 10 feet higher in the trees because you want to be up by their peripheral vision. Because if you get down low where you might set up during preseason because you got foliage and it's a, it's a false sense of security, um, you know, you're going to get up higher in the winter. Right. You can 
you can block runways that are slightly out of distance and, and actually maneuver the runways with coming back closer to you. And if you got, you know, especially in bedding areas, if you've got, you know, three or four or five runways coming into a destination feeding location like oaks or some apple trees or some briars where they like to eat those dark green leaves on briar pricker bushes, um, you know, if, if you've got runways feeding a destination location, you can go and clean those runways out. A lot of times there'll be deadfalls in there, big branches will fall off trees and they'll block these runways and deer can't get down them anymore. So right. the more you can clean up these old runways and make them easier for deer to, to you know, travel down, the more odds of a bigger buck coming down it, you know, because his antlers will fit and stuff. You know, so I'm, I'm curious, man, you know... <laughs> You have a lot of, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time and you have a lot of places pre-prepped and stuff like that, but I'm curious, you know, I would just like for the guys out there that maybe are maybe newer to hunting public land, or maybe they're just newer to bow hunting in general, you know, do you scout differently if you're going to a new piece that you've never been to before, but you have the postseason, right? But the rub is, is that on the pieces that you're familiar with, when you see sign and you see scrapes, primary scrapes, and you can kind of differentiate your primaries from like your, you know, your satellite scrapes, if you will, you know, based on the location and stuff like that. But you may not know exactly when some of that signs being made, right? It's right. On, a, on a new piece. So how do you kind of go about that? Because I think a lot of guys kind of run into that, especially if you're hunting public land in a really high pressured area, you know, you know, Michigan, Pennsylvania, whatever the case is. You know, I've talked to this with, you know, about this with Zach um, from the hunting public before. And one of the things that he's found is that earlier in the season, he would find just as an example, he would be hunting like in October and he would find a scrape line. Right. And then he would come back maybe a couple of weeks later and that scrape line would be completely dead. But there would be almost like a secondary scrape line where they got pushed from all the pressure and they started kind of laying down sign in the area that they were now inhabiting. So how do you go? How do you go about trying to differentiate? or figure out when that sign might've been laid down. If you don't have that year over kind of experience on that property. Okay. I will say this: the hunting public guys, I love them to death. I've done some podcasts with them, but they don't hunt public land like Michigan and PA. Right. So, <laughs> so there's, there's a major difference in what they're hunting than what you and I are hunting on publicly. Right. Right. Um, but, uh, as, as when I'm going on a new piece of public land, no, I, I can tell, I can tell, if it's in zone three in Michigan, which is the southern half of the lower peninsula, mm -hmm. that's where probably 70% of the population of our state resides. Mm -hmm. So the public lands in zone three get absolutely pounded. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to, and that's typically where the bigger bucks are, because there is more ag down in southern Michigan than there is in northern Michigan's almost all timber. So I tend to gravitate my public land hunting in zone three, but when I'm down there, there's so much hunting pressure that if if I can't find a location where it's absolutely mandatory, I access it with waders or hip boots, hmm. cross something, uh, cross a lake, cross a river with a canoe, go up a river with a canoe. Um, I'm not even, you know, I'm not even going to waste my time. Because right. it's, it's a total 100% waste of my time because if I don't go, if I go in any spot where I can physically park a vehicle, park my vehicle, and get out and walk to a location with regular knee boots on. I don't care how much sign is there. There's not going to be a, the odds of a buck that I want to kill being there during daylight hours is really close to zero. Right. Uh, so, and you just have to know that. And it's, it goes back to what I said earlier. You have to pretend everybody there is trying to kill you. Put it in that perspective. You're an adult. You're not a child. You know, mm -hmm. when people are in, yeah, when they were in Afghanistan, they didn't leave the compound during daylight hours because they knew they'd be vulnerable. So right. you know, deer are the same damn way. They know where they're vulnerable and where they're not. And they're only mature bucks that have lived through two or three years of gun season, probably been wounded. You know, 28 of my 31 bucks I've shot in Michigan that made book all had wounds on them. Right. So they've been wounded typically and they are very cautious about where they're going to get up and move during daylight hours. Now you throw a hot dough into the equation and that can change. Right. Yeah. But as far as when they're not with a hot dough, uh, they just don't make many mistakes. Um, 
during pre-rut and rut, most of my uh, my best percentages have been between 11 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Hmm. So, so just to give you some stats on that, um, 20, 20 of my Michigan book bucks were shot between November 1 and November 14, because our gun season opens on November 15. Of those 20 book bucks, Seven of them were shot between 11 o'clock in the morning and 3 in the afternoon, while less than 8% of my time spent on stand was between 11 o'clock and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So I shot over about 35% of the bucks in that time frame while I spent less than 8% of my time on stand hunting during that time frame. All right, this next clip is from our buddy Josh Ilderton from The Untamed. Super good dude. He's actually a fellow that I've stayed in contact with and, and text throughout the out the season. Definitely have to have him back on the show. But this first clip uh, with him is uh, what we're really kind of talking about is, you know, not being afraid to bump deer, especially when you're ground hunting. Josh does a lot of ground hunting in the big woods and in, in hill country or mountain country, if you will, in, in West Virginia. Um, places that you might not think of hunting from the ground as being a, uh, a, a kind of go-to tactic, but that's kind of Josh's primary way of, of getting it, getting after it. And so what we talk about here is just, you know, ground hunting, you know, is, is not for someone who might be kind of focusing on hunting a specific deer and, and, and Josh's kind of, uh, preference to hunt like a coyote and, and hunt for opportunity, then a specific deer and not being afraid to kind of move deer and bump deer and, and, and go find another one. It's kind of the method that you have to kind of have, or the mentality you kind of have to have to, um, to use ground hunting successfully in your repertoire, especially in places that it might be a little bit unconventional. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Especially if you've got some, especially if you've got some acreage to play with. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. It's, you know, because I, I, you know. I think some, I think where some of that comes in for some folks when they're thinking of that stuff is that, you know, they're thinking of maybe like small agricultural parcels out in the Midwest or even like smaller private parcels in Pennsylvania or West Virginia or whatever. It's like, yeah, sure. You, you can't go around bumping a ton of deer if you only got a hundred acres. Cause you know, if he crosses, if he runs 200 yards, that might've been 150 yards across the neighbor's line or whatever the case is, right. you know? And I, and I understand that. Yeah, for sure. But if you're wanting to hunt on the ground, you need to go in knowing you're going to bump deer. Mm -hmm. If you're if you're going to jump in that in 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 that water and start start hunting from the ground, you need to know from the get go you're going to bump deer. You're going to foul up. Right. You know you're going to make you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Deer are smarter than us. <laughs> right. Most of the time. Right. You know. And and, and uh, I've hunted small parcels. Uh, but I've always been on the the mindset of the you know if I bump it and it goes across it goes across you know um, there's other deer yeah no uh, I, I agree with that a hundred percent I don't know if ground hunting is for the person wanting to kill a specific deer you you have to be an opportunist right. to be a ground hunter because there's going to be a lot of things happen because you're throwing yourself out there day after day and you're covering a lot more area mm -hmm. on the ground. Yeah. That's uh, that's an advantage of hunting on the ground is is learning more terrain and and getting out there and you know you're not the to focus on a specific deer is probably not the 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 right tactic. Right now, do you do you most often are you hunting for as my one buddy Josh says is uh, my other buddy Josh, yeah, <laughs> yeah that he he, he kind of refers to it as he, he hunts like a coyote. He's hunting for opportunity not necessarily so much a specific deer. He will at times, but how do you kind of, how do you kind of cut that? Do you hunt often just for straight opportunity? Do you ever, I know there was recently a hunt, uh, if I'm not mistaken that you did, and I don't remember if it was last year or if it was this year that you were actually after a specific deer. This, this was the, in the, in the, this past season was the first year 
that I've hunted a specific deer and you know it didn't work out in in to my advantage uh but I'm glad that I did it I won't ever do it again yeah yeah you know um but I hunted that deer hard and and I learned a lot uh and you know I never set eyes on him I set eyes on him in 2019, um, but I never set eyes on him in 2020, but I had him within 60 yards of me probably half a dozen times because I got him on a, uh, on a off trail camera. Right. And, you know, a cell camera, I'm sitting there in a tree and there, he, you know, <laughs> it goes off and there he is. And I said, well, he's over here. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, a couple of times I tried to get down out of the tree and, and go after him, but it was a little too crunchy. Right. Uh, but hunting a specific deer takes uh, a different type of hunter, and, and I commend all the guys that do it. Oh, yeah, man. Because it, it's a discipline um, that, that I just don't have. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like to be able to go and, if I get on a buck and I feel good about it, I go after him, I kill him, you know, it's it. Right. Uh, I like, I like opportunity, opportunity hunting. Yeah. Like your buddy says, you know, uh, I enjoyed hunting that specific deer. You know, it was a monster, um, but it just didn't work out. And it would probably take a whole lot for me to go through that again. Right. Yeah. All my time to that one deer. All right, this next clip is again from our buddy Josh Elderton. Uh, it was a continuation of the of of the conversation from the clip that you just heard. And what we talk about in this next session, it's a brief it's a brief clip. We're talking about hunting for now, which is something that we talked a little bit about in the previous clip with uh with jo- with John Eberhart. And I think if you go back and listen to any of the podcasts uh from the past several years, um what a lot of these folks or guests have had in common is that they're always kind of searching for that sign that is hot right now. And that's kind of what Josh is talking about um, during this next clip is, is, is hunting for now and uh, you know, not really wanting to be chasing ghosts uh, while he's in the timber. And the fact that, you know, time is super precious, not, we, you know, most of us don't have a ton of it. And so, you know, making sure that you're um, giving yourself the best chance possible to have success by hunting the freshest sign is, is, is paramount. What it does or what it's helped me do just being aggressive and moving at least even not even ground hunting, but just moving and being aggressive is understanding where the deer are at, where the sign is being laid down now. So I think a lot of people get hung up on trying to use his story. I mean, I love to scout and I'll scout all winter long up into the season. And, you know, if I find a new piece, I'll scout it during the summer. It's like, I'm not one of those guys that just stop scouting at a certain point. If I can get out and scout, I will check cameras or whatever. But a lot of folks will hunt sign where they saw this last October here or this, you know, rub line here during this time of the year. And when you see that, maybe you saw it postseason scout. It's like, you don't know when that was made, you know? And if you're banking on going back to that spot to hunt it and you're not sure if it was laid down in October or November, you might be three weeks late. You might be a year late. You could, it could be a year late. Yeah. You might be, you might be hunting a ghost. Yeah. Uh, that's why, I mean, one, I don't have a whole lot of time. You know, time is, um, critical for scouting. I don't do a lot of, sc- I mean, I glass because mm-hmm. I enjoy the glass. Uh, but you know, I, I'm, I'm, hunting for now right you know if i'm in the woods I, I i scout while i'm hunting yeah because i think that's the only real time information you can get for right then like i i don't want to waste my time hunting three day four day old sign right yeah exactly. you know i want to i want to i want to find deer that i'm gonna hunt today this evening yeah you right. know that makes sense. You know, I mean, does that, I mean, I don't know if that makes sense or not. No, it t- it totally does, man. Because um, that's and plus, I'm moving all the time. You know, I don't know. I'd hate to find a rub that's a week old and the deer's already been killed. <laughs> and I don't know. You know, it's just another waste of time. And time is something that 
all of us don't have a lot of. Yeah, and and it, you don't get it back. It's the it's our most precious commodity. Yeah, as I say, you know what I mean. Yeah. All right, these next couple clips are from our buddy Todd Mead. Our, uh, Todd is from New York. Uh, if you didn't listen to the two podcasts we did with him this this past year in 2021, I'd go back and check those out. Um, he does a lot of hunting out of state. He's you know uh, very much a DIY traveling bow hunter. But his home state of New York, he kind of resides in and around the the Adirondacks, and that's where he really kind of cut his teeth, and that is where he does a lot of his 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 in state hunting. Adirondacks, of course, huge area, big woods, um, very much a wilderness area. Um, and the one thing we talk about in this first clip here is kind of annual patterns in the big woods. That's something that um, I'm still kind of learning, but I certainly have picked up a ton from my buddy Chad Sylvester hunting big woods with him and stuff like that. And it's starting to pay off for me, even just in some of the, I won't call them big woods, but just, you know, the public parcels I hunt around here, kind of paying attention to annual, uh, annual data. And certainly as I've kind of ventured out into some bigger woods areas here in PA uh, this past off season, and then again, you know, looking to learn more um, over the course of this winter, uh, paying attention to that annual uh, annual data, regardless of whether you're using trail cameras or whether you're just kind of watching and logging journals and stuff like that. Annual data in the big woods is is certainly um, worth its weight in gold in terms of getting on deer consistently, especially in places that are low density. So let's hear from Todd in this clip. I know as I was reading through your book, like you started talking a little bit about that uh, that kind of approach of of seeing, you know, I don't annual data maybe is one way to say it, but that you started noticing like annual trends and like when things would kind of turn on or, you know, or turn off or whenever you needed to be in a certain area, kind of what you were talking about where it's like deer and where you're at are so transient. They'll be in one spot for two weeks and then they may not be there again until the next year for those same two weeks. So can you talk to me a little bit about how you kind of, how you, how do you kind of navigate through that? Sure. Like, I mean, I, I killed a lot of deer before there was any technology, but when technology started becoming more relevant in the deer hunting world, I decided to try it out and see what I could learn. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, the first year I wanted a trail camera my father bought me a trail camera. So I'm like, oh, I'll try this. And then I got some pictures of deer. I'm like, oh, this is cool. So as time goes by, I used them a little bit, not a whole lot. And then, uh, the more and more that I started hunting, I'm like, well, I'll just buy cheap trail cameras. So just as an example, this year between my friend Brian and myself across all of the Adirondacks, you know, that 6 million acres or whatever, Mm -hmm. I think between the two of us, we had 65 cameras in the woods. Nice. So, and, and this isn't for this year, Mm -hmm. it's for next year, the year after like some places I've had a camera in there for two to three years and I've, I haven't hunted there yet. I'm just collecting data. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I have learned in a couple of the places that I hunt, I can tell you exactly when you need to be there in a three day stretch. And if you go there, you're probably going to fill your tag. Right. And uh, It takes a lot of hard work to do that. And the thing is, you don't want to chase trail cameras during hunting season. You just want to go put them out before the season and collect them at the end of the season. Right. And then areas that I hunt the most, I really don't have a lot of trail cameras in there. Maybe one just kind of to see what's going on here and there. Right. Um, because I feel like some areas I figured out and other areas I'm trying to figure out. Um, like this year, my buddy Adam and I, we put cameras in the same area. And this area is really hard to get to. I mean, it's it's an area I know I'll never see another person because it's just too difficult to get to. Right. So the end of the year, I went in there to pull my camera, and uh, and then I pulled one of Adams or two of Adams. I didn't know where the other ones were, and then we went through all the data on there. And when we looked at it, we realized between Halloween in the last weekend of our season, there were never more than three days in a row that a big buck wasn't in there in the daylight. <laughs> and the reason they weren't in there is because the area is so hard to get to. It had absolutely no pressure. <laughs> and, you know, of course, there were other things that led to it, but that, that was one of the big ones. Right. And for the Adirondacks to have, I don't know, I think I think Adam had 14 different bucks on one camera. Wow. And that, in the Adirondacks, there are, I mean, maybe one to five deer per square mile. 
And so the, a lot of these deer are just, you know, one timers, other ones visited the area where the camera was a lot, but like going into next year, I can, I can almost guarantee you that Adam and I, one of us will kill a deer there. All right. This next clip is again from our buddy, Todd. We're going to go a run on Todd Mead here uh, for a couple clips here. Um, but this next clip is uh, really kind of talking about, you know, where do you really start when you're hunting a big woods section or a big woods piece that has extremely low, uh, low deer density? You know, the common knowledge would be if you're going to a place that maybe you're not super familiar, you're scouting a new place or whatever the case is, um, you're going to look for certain like terrain features or maybe habitat features and stuff like that and say, hey, you know, relate that back to sign that maybe you've seen somewhere else that you've hunted or whatever the case is. And you have yourself a generally a good a good starting point. You know, for example, if you're in hill country, you know, you might start at those military crests, you know, looking for looking for buck beds or you might, you know, at least kind of go to, you know, you may not want to hunt saddles necessarily because those are going to probably get, you know, more of the pressure uh, than than other terrain features. But it might be a good place to start to find just deer sign or you might find a creek crossing or if you're in swamp, you might just find that transition edge that you're going to follow just to try to get on deer side to follow it back to where they might be better or whatever the case is when you're hunting these big kind of contiguous, you know, forests, you know, like the Adirondacks or, you know, you know, in Maine or wherever, they, wherever this might be, you know, there's certainly big tracks of public all over the place that, that kind of lend themselves to this, but like to have limited structure. Um, that's really what I, you know, Todd and I are talking about here is like, how does he go about, kind of finding or starting kind of, you know, locating where that sign might be in the absence of heavy deer density. So the sign's not going to jump out and smack you in the face. And you probably have limited, limited structure to kind of point you in a specific direction. And what he really talks about here is that he tries to think about deer as though they are people and what they might need to survive. So let's go ahead and listen to this clip with Todd. I've noticed this in like certain big wood settings, you know, and so I'm curious to see like how this plays in the Adirondacks, but are there particular like terrain features or habitat features or a specific elevation that you've been able to key in on? Like if you went into a new spot that there's particular things you're going to look at, you're like, eh, I know that there's a low deer density and it's, and there's dead zones, but if I'm going to prioritize it's this terrain, this habitat or this elevation where I'm going to start. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Now, if you ask, like all the, I don't know what, what I would call them, legendary Adirondack hunters. Mm -hmm. I'd say you ask 10 of them, you're probably going to get nine different answers. Right. And it's because everybody has a different hunting style. Mm -hmm. so I'll just tell you what I do, which might be totally opposite from what other people do. Right. Uh, I'm a kind of person who I relate deer to people. Okay, so what do you need as a person? A deer needs the same thing. It needs to eat, it needs to drink, and it needs cover. You know, so you you need to eat your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, you might be able to skip a couple of them. Mm -hmm. A place to sleep where you're going to be protected from, you know, people trying to get you, the weather, all that stuff. And then you're going to need a place to drink because you have to drink every day or you won't you won't survive. So uh, so what I do is I try to focus around like water areas because you're going to find everything around water. If you, if you get into like an area that has a bunch of beaver flows and stuff like that, or like small lakes, small ponds, you'll always find a lot of deer sign around them because they have everything that they need there. So when I look for different places in the Adirondacks. I always look for swamps, uh, ponds and rolling Hills. I don't hunt. I don't, although we have big mountainous terrain and stuff, I don't like to hunt on a lot of it. I will hunt in some of it, but I'm not a fan of hunting on steep stuff. And it's basically, it's not because deer aren't there and it's not because deer don't get killed there. It's just because I don't prefer that. Hmm. I feel like I'm more successful in other areas. Got it. But then if you ask a handful of other guys, they're going to say, go to the highest point you can go on the mountain, then hunt your way down it. Right. And, uh, and see what happens. But, uh, as far as me, I'm a swamp edger where fingers run down into the swamp. So a lot of the big bucks, they'll travel along the edge of the swamps. And then there'll be fingers that come down off, off the ridges and stuff. And, uh, if there's danger on either side of them, they can quickly escape. They can go into the swamp because it's thick, like nothing's going to be in there. And if they have danger from the swamp side, they can just run up those fingers. Um, 
you know, and in, in the areas that we're in the, the, you know, the landscape is so huge that, I mean, it doesn't take long for them to disappear. You'll never see them again. Right. Right. Do you take a similar approach when you go, go out of state? Or are you looking for similar things when you're, when you're traveling? Uh, to be honest, it, this is going to sound really weird, but like when we go out of state, I do a lot of aerial scouting and my friend, Brian and my dad usually go a week before me. Mm-hmm. And what I do is I do all the aerial scouting and then I supply them with a bunch of maps and places to go to mm-hmm. look at mm-hmm. what they do is they spend, they hunt, but they spend, they hunt in the morning and then in the evening and they hunt in all these new places that I've given them to look at. And it really, although I look for the things that I look for in the Adirondacks, it's more of a, just cover as much ground as you can in a certain area and see what you find. All right. This next clip is again with our buddy from uh, our buddy, Todd Mead talking again about uh, big woods, kind of big woods areas. And in this particular clip, um, you know, the, a lot of this stuff that we, we were talking about was me kind of, I read one of the books that he had written and just had a bunch of questions based off of, based off of reading the book. And one of the things that really kind of struck me and it actually helped me this year. And I actually had a really great encounter uh, with a, with a, with a shooter deer. And it was based off of kind of some of the stuff I picked up from Todd here. Um, and it, it really kind of is related to signpost rubs and how he kind of views, views them as a hub. I know a lot of the kind of conventional wisdom is, is like, you know, what we know or what a lot of people will know is that when you find a signpost rub, a lot of times it's where a, you know, core ranges or fall ranges, whatever, whatever the case is, whatever we want to call it, um, of mature deer or bucks in general overlap. Right. And so I think that that's kind of the general wisdom. Like people kind of get that, you know, but hunting right over a signpost rub may or may not be, may or may not be effective. And that's what Todd's talking about here is that what he has kind of learned or found out is that is kind of the hub, which I think we all kind of recognize it's the hub of, of, uh, of kind of travel, you know, or communication, if you will, and, and, and travel. Um, but what he is finding is that hunting off of that rub and in some adjacent areas, you know, a hundred yards in any direction say is really where the deer activity is and that they're visiting this one specific spot every now and then, you know, and frequent enough to say, Hey, this is, you know, where my core range or my range kind of overlaps with yours or whatever the case is. But the real activity and the real opportunity is just on the outskirts of that. So if we think about it like a um, like a dartboard almost, like the signpost rub would be the bullseye, and then one ring out from that would be kind of the area where all these deer are kind of spending a lot of time kind of traveling around this particular area. So with that, we'll go ahead and listen to the clip with Todd. I want to. You mentioned scrape or you mentioned rubs just a couple minutes ago when you were talking about you know being able to tell. Um, you know, maybe what direction the deer's deer's headed, you know, or, or what time that, that spot might be good morning, evening, based on, you know, maybe you see a rub that's headed into like a bedding area on top of a ridge or whatever the case is, you know, talk to me a little bit about how you're reading rubs and specifically how you're using signpost rubs to kind of orient yourself, because that was one of the really interesting things that I picked up while I was reading the book, because I've, I've found in a couple of different areas that, I, that I've hunted some, you know, some decent signpost rubs, but to, for the life of me, I could not kind of correlate or tie back anything to those signpost rubs. And then I, when I was reading through your book, what you kind of mentioned made a lot of sense. And I started thinking about it differently And the, this particular parcel started making a lot more sense to me. So uh, talk to me a little bit about how the significance of the signpost rub and how you kind of use that as a, as a compass to a degree. First, you're going to have to refresh me because I don't remember writing anything about <laughs> signpost rub in there. Now, you were kind of, t- you talked about, you know, when you're looking like you'll find these rubs and they, you know, they come in all shapes and sizes and they, and they mean different things. And the one thing you kind of mentioned was that, you know, when you find a, a signpost rub, the one thing that kind of dawned on you was that it almost acts as, as a spoke or as a hub for spokes to come off of like it's a bicycle tire. Yeah. Okay. Right. I, I don't need any more. I just okay. couldn't remember what I wrote about in there. Um, <laughs> yeah. So here's an example. Okay. Like, I started hunting a new area and my cousin Kyle had told me to hunt in there. Mm-hmm. And he's like of all my cousins, he's the closest one because we both hunt and he's probably a much better hunter than me, but he's not as good of a shooter as me. So uh he 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 just takes his gun for a walk and shoots it in the woods. So but anyhow, 
he brought me into this area and he told me, he says, this, this area is really good. And I, I looked around in it and I'm like, eh, I don't know if I want to come back here. So the more I looked around, we're getting ready to leave. And I told him, I said, Kyle, I'm not going to hunt in here. I just, it's not for me. Uh, I don't see enough sign in here to warrant coming back. And then I looked like out across this swamp and in the swamp, I, there was sun shining on this tree. And it was like an aha moment. The, there was a signpost out there and it was rubbed probably about to my chest. And it was, you know, it had been for years. It was hollowed out and stuff. Yep. So I'm like, holy cow, let's go take a look at that. So I went and looked at it. I mean, this tree was giant. I mean, it was, it was as big as my waist. <laughs> for the country I live in, that's, that's pretty damn big. Yeah. Um, and then, then I looked at it and I'm like, holy cow. So I said to him, I said, I'm coming back in here hunting. So my whole philosophy changed on it in a matter of five minutes <laughs> in that one rub, because I mean, granted little, little deer are going to hit that tree too. But I mean, for the way that the tree was shredded year after year, I knew big bucks lived in there, even right. though I had a them yet. So what I did is I put a trail camera on it and, uh, I left the trail camera on it for two years, I think. And I got one picture of a big buck and it wasn't even on the signpost tree. It was just walking by it. And then I had a bunch of pictures of does. So, and then I sat there a few times. I didn't see anything. I'm like, man, what the hell's going on? I know there's deer in here. So then the more I wandered around in there, I started finding more deer sign. So then over time, I realized I was just in the wrong spot. It was a place where big bucks went and rubbed trees, but not very often. Mm-hmm. And they hit it, you know, early in the season. And uh, it was before the deer were really doing, you know, doing what they do during the prime time of the hunting season. Right. And I moved a couple hundred yards in every direction. And since the year I found that signpost, I killed deer all around it but I still don't see any deer around it. Hmm. So it's more like uh, if you find a signpost, you know, a lot of deer probably use it and you know that there's, you know, that that area holds big deer because most likely big deer are the ones that, that are thrashing the tree. Right. So when you find the signpost, you have to look all around it. Like it's all encompassing. Mm-hmm. It would be, I don't know what to explain it as it would be similar to, Okay, like you're going to go downtown to get something to eat in the hub is like there might be a food court someplace, but then, you know, oh, there's better areas that aren't quite as busy, a little bit better food, you know, on the outskirts of the city or whatever. Mm-hmm. When you find the main area, which is the signpost or whatever, you know, you're in the game, but now you just have to figure out where to sit in the stands. Right. It it becomes micro adjustments at that, at that yeah, point, like yeah. you, you've, you've gotten into the right town. Now you just need to get to the right street and in the right house, you know, at, at That's that it. point. And then just, keep, you know, just keep on looking because, you know, without a big deer population, it might take you a while to figure it out. Like this place frustrated me to no end. I couldn't figure it out. And then instantly one day I found something, it was a, it was a giant, uh, you know, community scrape and it wasn't 200 yards from that signpost. And then after I found the signpost, like I, you know, I killed a lot of, a lot of big deer off that other scrape. Right. Yeah. It's, I, cause I, it's, scrapes are coming up next. Cause that's one of the things I want to talk about. But before we move to that, you know, was this signpost, was it related to betting at all? Like the, was there, was there betting that was nearby there? And that, and just in general, I wanted to ask too, maybe most specifically to the Adirondacks is, you know, where are you? where are you finding, I guess, the most, the most betting or how are you locating? Like, I guess maybe let me back up and rephrase this earlier in the year before, you know, maybe capitalizing on movement, you know, in say like early October, for example, you know, where are you kind of noticing that those mature bucks are betting in, in, in the big woods? Is there a particular area that you've kind of keyed in on or is it? Yeah. Big woods are totally different when it comes to betting. Like you yeah. can pretty much toss betting out the window. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like a Midwestern thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm a firm believer. I might have people argue with me, but in my experiences, like I've followed a lot of deer tracks. I've hunted all over. I've covered a lot of ground. There are very few pieces of woods 
where deer bed consistently in the same place. Mm-hmm. They do this. But in my experiences, deer I followed and stuff like that, they walk and they, they eat a little bit and they lay down when they're tired. Yep. They don't, that bedding quote unquote cover, mm-hmm. quite as necessary is what it is in areas that are a lot more condensed mm-hmm. where the thing is essential to their survival. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, I mean, I've seen a lot of places where deer will bed, you know, like where they can overlook, you know, big areas. But then I've also seen where deer bed, like right underneath a blowdown where you can't see 10 feet in any direction. Uh, one thing earlier in the year, which I know for, for a fact, cause I, I use this strategy a lot. If you find a lot of rubs, like what I call clusters of rubs early in the year, right around an area that's being fed a lot, you can almost guarantee that that buck is living right there. He's sleeping, he's eating, he's doing everything right there. But as soon as you get into like that last week of October, you can toss that out of the window because he's probably not going to stay there anymore. Right. So like if I find big rubs or like clusters of any kinds of rubs, and there's like a beech tree that is dropping or, or say an oak tree, which is a little bit, you know, you find more oak trees on the southern end of the Adirondacks. Uh, if you find any of those rubs and, and you have an active tree like that, you're probably going to see that deer if you just stick it out. All right. This next clip is, again, from our buddy Todd Mead. It's just an extended or a continuation of the, of the, of the clip or the conversation that you just heard. And what we're talking about here is, you know, when you're in these low deer density areas like like Todd Hunts in the Adirondacks, um, you may get limited opportunities to kind of even even observe deer. And so one thing he really kind of talks about here, and it's something that, you know, I've certainly held true or found to be true, you know, even when I'm not hunting big woods kind of pieces is, you know, to be around deer in order to learn about deer. Um, you know, you can listen to podcasts and I, and I've mentioned this in the past with, you know, other podcast guests and and other episodes that we've done that there's only so much you can take from reading articles and only so much you can gather from podcasts and, and things of that nature. They're great resources. They're great places to kind of start. They're great places to kind of get an understanding of a theory an idea strategy or whatever the case is. But the real kind of learning is going out and being around deer and watching them do deer things and then asking those questions why and then being able to relate it back to things that maybe you've read or things that you've heard and start to provide some context and how you might adapt those learnings and use them in your own kind of hunting situation. So in this clip, that is what we were talking about, about being around deer to learn about deer is that I actually watch the deer more intently now, even if I'm not going to shoot it. And just kind of study what it's doing and how it's reacting and like what noises is it reacting to and how is it reacting to the to the scrape and how much time is it spending sniffing and is it circling downwind or anything like just watching their getting to spend more time with deer around me and, and recognizing that that's a learning opportunity for me and not just a an encounter that's fleeting, but there's something there to be gained is one of the things that I most appreciate about hunting over scrapes. And that's one of the things you talked about was just learn about deer more quickly. You learn about them more quickly when you're surrounded, surrounded by them. So can you talk to me a little bit about that idea? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's funny because being brought up in the Adirondacks, I was never around a lot of deer. Um, but one thing I was able to do is since there aren't very many deer, I was able to find deer. Mm -hmm. So then as I went to the Midwest, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to see more deer, of course. Mm -hmm. So that, out there. And then I, the more that I started watching deer, the more that I learned about them. And, uh, it just, it allowed me to understand things that I had never understood before. Like if you, I think a lot of people just regurgitate information and, uh, they heard it. So that's the, you know, that's the rule or whatever. Right. I've seen a lot of deer that, that don't come into scrapes downwind. Mm-hmm. I mean, into scrapes whatever direction they come into them from and uh you know they might cross cut the wind or stuff like that but i mean just like little things like that too many people are all hung up on oh you have to be in this spot or you have to be in that spot well when i'm in the woods i've learned you can be almost anywhere because when you're in big woods deer tend to wander all over the place and they come from different places 
there might be a primary place they come from, but they will come from all directions. And uh, I think knowing that is important. And I learned that by watching deer. I mean, because you could you could sit someplace one morning and have deer come from four different directions. And then you might have the big buck that came from the direction you anticipated he came from. And, you know, if you paid attention to, say, the wind in the morning or whatever, you, you locked out. But then you might have some other big deer come from the direction that the wind, you know, that you set up so the wind was in your favor and it ended up not being in your favor. Mm-hmm. So as far as learning about deer, I learned, uh, goes back to that whole thing, like, don't don't overanalyze everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, take it for what it is and and see what happens. and. Another thing, like it, which became really obvious to me, you have a lot of time usually to shoot a deer. Yeah, take your time. Like most people will pull their bow back and they'll they'll get on it and let it rip. I mean, just take your time. And uh, I would rather not get a shot than to rush a shot off and then make a you know make a bad shot. All right, gang, that is the last clip for this session of the look back at 2021. We didn't get through, but just a couple different podcasts. You know, I'll probably have a couple more of these that come out where I'll cherry pick some of the better parts of the conversations. It's always kind of fun for me to go back and listen to the old podcast, you know, from the from the previous year and and revisit those. There's always a lot of things that in the moment that I, you know, that were interesting that maybe I just kind of forgot about after the podcast was done. So I certainly pick up nuggets along the way. And if not, if not picking up nuggets, I pick up, you know, stark reminders of maybe things that I'd forgotten about that I need to kind of revisit or revisit or, or pay more attention to. So with that, we'll go ahead and get out of here. Hope everyone's 2022 is killer. Let's give it hell. Thanks for listening. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast and hell while you're at it. Head over to YouTube and give us a sub there. I'd be super appreciative if you do those few things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Spartan Forge, Exodus Outdoor Gear, and Skull Brew Coffee Company. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.